it was a success and still to this day it was a success in several ways just not financially financially it was a flop but as one of my agents that we we worked with and I won't mention her by name but you know one of the things that she had told me was Justin if you never do this again you did it if you go to burger flipping you produced the biggest music festival at the time and she was right podcasting from Boulder Colorado this is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a savvy marketer combined music festivals, action sports, and branding to build an experiential marketing agency that serves brands like Coke, Rivian, and Anheuser-Busch. Now, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes. iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts, and ratings help us to build an audience, which then helps us continue to produce this show. On today's episode, we are talking to my good friend, Justin Moss. As you are about to hear, Justin is a passionate marketer who is fired up about events, music festivals, and experiential marketing. Justin is the founder of the Pineapple Agency, which is known for creating big, bold activations for companies like Coke, Rivian, Anheuser-Busch, Procter & Gamble, Google, Insomniac, Under Armour, and Converse. Those are just a couple recognizable brand names. Pineapple Agency is responsible for generating millions of unique media impressions, hundreds of thousands of event attendees and brand loyalists, and tens of thousands of dollars worth of merchandise sold. Justin's story is a wild ride, and I can't wait to share it with you. Justin was on the forefront of music festivals in the U.S. They weren't always a thing. And even the New York Times called his event ahead of our time. And this is his story. Justin, what is the Pineapple Agency? The Pineapple Agency is an experiential event marketing agency. And I always like to say creative event agency as well, because we work on, we create live experiences that emotionally connect brands to their consumer in very authentic ways. But uh, we also, I have a background in concerts and music festivals. So we work very heavily on music festivals. Currently, we're, we work on 17 of some of the biggest music festivals in the world. Everything from operations to production to marketing. So we're, we're a pretty diverse firm. Yeah, and I do want to get into that and talk a little bit more about what you're doing today and how you got there. But before we do that, let's go back. Let's go, let's go way back. Was young Justin, eight-year-old Justin, did he think he was going to be an experiential marketer? What was life like for you uh, at eight years old and where'd you grow up? No, I, I did. I did definitely didn't think I was going to be an experiential marketer or even in events. I wasn't even, I wasn't a huge live event person. I was a rambunctious redhead I was outside a lot. I rode bikes. I built handmade ramps and did crazy shit. Um, I, I had a lot of fun. I was very outdoorsy. Um, I played a lot of sports. Yeah, I was, I was uh, you know, a go-getter. I started my first uh, business when I was uh, nine with my brother, Brandon. But even then, didn't know that I was going to be a, an event person or a business owner but I was definitely a rambunctious eight-year-old and uh, having, you know, overcome a lot of adversity really young from having a brain tumor to, you know, my family filing bankruptcy. So just grew up really quickly. <laughs> well, we'll get into all that, but t brain tumor, tell me about that. So you, you're eight years old and you, and you get a brain tumor? Yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty crazy time. So... I, I was having some severe headaches for, for a long time and, and uh, uh, I was blacking out and uh, my family kept taking me to doctor after doctor and 
Uh, we were waiting for an MRI to become available because uh, my mom at that time, this is 86, 87, didn't want me to have a CAT scan because she believed that the dyes that they put in your arm and your, you, you know, that go straight to your brain uh, would cause cancer. And that's a whole nother podcast. But um, they uh, finally, it was around October 1987. Doctors had diagnosed me with food allergies, specifically nuts and chocolate. So for an eight-year-old <laughs> during Halloween, not being able to eat nuts and chocolate, I was like, what the fuck? So um, anyway, uh, there was a point in time, I believe it was a, over a period of uh, 24, maybe 48 hours that I became really, really frail and fragile and passed out. And, and my mom and dad had rushed me to the hospital and they obviously, you know, had no choice but to do a CAT scan. Uh, it might've been an MRI. I really don't know. Um, and essentially they found a, a really rare tumor that is not normally found in children, uh, that was on my cerebellum. And, um, basically, uh, they gave my mom and dad, you know, the news that, if they couldn't subside the tumor and make it smaller, that I probably had about 12 hours to live. Um, but obviously they had to try to subside it or go in immediately. So um, luckily they were able to subside it to where they gave uh, my mom and dad a little bit of breathing room. This I was rushed to Monmouth County Hospital in New Jersey. And so what ended up happening is the doctors there um, gave my parents a choice, either have a normal neurosurgeon remove the tumor. And I say normal, like there's no neurosurgeon that's normal. They're all amazing. Uh, you know, you got to be a special type of crazy to dig into somebody's brain. But um, the other alternative was fly me to Philadelphia Children's Hospital immediately and have a, um, at that time, a world-renowned child neurosurgeon remove the tumor and at that time, that neurosurgeon was one of the first to remove conjoined twins by the brain. And so basically my parents, um, with guidance from the doctors, decided to fly me to Philadelphia Children's Hospital, which still today is one of the most um, renowned children's hospitals in the world for brain tumors and, and, and uh, neuro, neurosurgery. Um, and so the, uh, I was flown there. Um, I, I think within... Uh, Within less than a day, maybe 15, 20 hours, um, I was brought into surgery. Um, I was the first kid to go into surgery fully clothed because, as I told you earlier, I was a rambunctious, crazy redhead, and I ran away, and they had to find me in an um, elevator, and I'm not lying. <laughs> and um, they didn't strap me down or anything, but they got me into the the emergency of uh, the surgery. And the last thing I remember is them putting the mask on me and me going to bed and them cutting my clothes off. And then uh, many, many hours later, I came out of surgery. Um, I was uh, awake, but not able to walk uh, as the tumor was on my cerebellum. So that affects your, your walking and your, your balance. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's where it is. I mean, obviously I could go on and on and on, but that's, that's where it ended. <laughs> Sort of. Well, yeah, that had to be terrifying. I mean, was there further treatment? Like, what were like your parents and your brother? I mean, that what was going on there? Yeah, it was. It was pretty. It was. It was. It's pretty surreal if I you know think back at it now. So my mom was induced with my baby sister um, in Staten Island. My mom wanted to have all of her children born in the same hospital. So my mom was induced, uh, and then she was rushed to Philadelphia for my surgery. Um, so I had a new baby sister going into surgery and then, um, I basically had to learn to walk again. So not in the sense that I didn't know how to do it, but my brain and my body were not working together. So it was months of physical therapy and learning to walk. And I wasn't able to get discharged from the hospital until um, I, I was able to walk. And so luckily, I think it was about three months, I was finally discharged um, from the hospital. And, um, you know, at that time, my father 
was driving back and forth from New Jersey to Philadelphia pretty much every day. And what was his business? Uh, my father and still is in the is in the blinds business, window treatments, um, and has had retail stores and and at that time he had carpet and tile stores as well. He he's been in the business forty five years. Yeah, and so uh, unfortunately, uh, during that time, my father's partner was embezzling money, uh, and so um, shortly after my tumor, my parents you know, made the difficult decision to file bankruptcy and move the family to South Florida to, to kind of start over. And that's, um, you know, there's a little bit. What was that like as a kid, you know, like your parents filing for bankruptcy, were you oblivious or did that like hit you hard? I mean, I know as a little kid, you pick up on a lot of things and certainly being part of a bankrupt family isn't, you know, in, in the cool sector of, of, of young kid, young kid labels. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I was a little bit oblivious, but I understood a little bit. Um, where I grew up in New Jersey was very wealthy area. And, you know, my family, you know, at that time lost everything pretty much. So you started realizing, you know, your friend's parents are driving Mercedes and Cadillacs and your family's driving, you know, a 19, you know, a 20 year old car, you know, or can't do landscaping in their house and, you know, just little things like that. But I didn't understand really what was going on until I was much, much older. Luckily we had at that time, I had a really close family friend that I um, ended up staying with uh, to finish my eighth grade year. And my mom and my dad, I'm sorry, my mom and my brother and my little sister moved to South Florida and my dad stayed in New York City working for somebody so he could build income, you know, to move everybody. So I understood that that was a little weird and that why am I staying at my friend's house as, you know, an 11, 12 year old kid. But it wasn't until I was much older and understood the gravity of what was going on and that we had family friends bringing us food because my mom and dad were, you know, having a tough time. So yeah, you know, it, 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 you know, you look back at it now and it's, you're like, I'm glad that my mom and dad insulated me the way they did. You know, my brother and my sister were older than me, so they, they understood more, but they, you know, everybody insulated me a little bit more. Yeah. And it must've been tough, but you know, also during that time, I, I understand that you and your brother, Brandon, uh, started your first business together. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm even today, I, I probably didn't think this way back then, but I'm a believer in everything happens for a reason, for whatever reason that is. And um, me and my brother were always big baseball card fans. I was I was a huge baseball fan growing up and um, I collected baseball cards and we had a family friend that owned a pharmacy. And, um, you know, back then, hopefully a lot of your listeners will be around my age will know that pharmacies back then were more mom and pop and they were not just pharmacies, but they were like small convenience stores. And, um, this family friend every, I don't know, so often, you know, more often than none, because I, you know, I was in the hospital and at home, he would bring me boxes of baseball cards, you know, unopened tops, Donruss baseball cards. And I would open them. So I amassed this huge amount of baseball cards and so my brother and I had been going to baseball card shows, you know, for a long time, which unfortunately don't really exist, but we'd go to these card shows and go and buy baseball cards and sell ours. So what we decided to do was start a baseball card business, but actually setting up a booth at these card shows. So we bought all the showcases and we started having our mom and dad, you know, schlep us from Pennsylvania to New York to all over Jersey, setting up and, and selling baseball cards. And then um, one of the things we segued into, and, and I say pivot, I'll say pivot, but back then I didn't know what pivot meant. We realized let's sell the baseball card holders. So the big cardboard boxes and the plastic sleeves. And so we, through my dad, we came across somebody that was buying everything in China, importing, importing it here. And, um, we ended up 
buying baseball card supplies and going to shows and selling baseball card supplies. So that was my first uh, quote unquote business. <laughs> and what, what, what came of that business? Did it have a name? Did, did it uh, have an exit? What, what, what became of that? No, no, it didn't have a name. It was, it was, um, you know, we were fondly known as the two brothers at the baseball card shows, but uh, no real official name. And it, it just sort of evaporated. Nothing really, I, I can't actually even, I mean, obviously there was no exit. Um, I think, you know, my brother and I just uh, got older and, and my brother certainly got older and didn't want to schlep around with, his younger brother anymore. And, and we made a little bit of money and, and did good things. We, we actually tried to get into the bicycle business after that. So, uh, that didn't go anywhere, but, um, yeah, it just sort of faded away. <laughs> Would you, how, like, how much money were you making? Were you making like real money? Were you, uh, making enough to do anything cool? Yeah. I mean, I think to, to two young kids, we were, we were doing pretty well. I mean, we would go to a baseball card show and make anywhere from, you know, a couple of grand to, you know, five, six, seven grand, you know, it really just depended, you know, it, it depended on our inventory. My brother was what kind of led the charge of walking around the shows, trying to sort of buy and sell um, some of our inventory to get new inventory. But look, at the, at the end of the day, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just two kids making some change and, you know, of course, at that time, my mom and dad weren't like, well, you owe me for the gas and driving me there and, you know, all the costs that are associated with the business other than paying our fees to go to the card shows. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was fun and I actually learned a lot, but I wouldn't say it was, I, I didn't have any aspirations of becoming a uh, global uh, entrepreneur in the baseball card world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you say you say pocket change, but man, like a couple grand at that age. Like I think in college, I lived on like twenty dollars a week. So yeah, uh, to to give a sense of like, I mean, that, that's a lot of money. That's really really great. And so you guys have this this baseball card business. You get a taste of what it's like to have a business. Then what happens? Do you do you start another business once your brother goes on and and, and does his own thing? Yeah, so we tried to get into the bicycle business and and my brother and I were calling the different bicycle companies and once again, nothing really happened there. And then, um, like I said, we ended up moving to South Florida and my life really changed a lot when we moved to South Florida. It was, it was a very different experience. I had understood a little bit more about what had happened with my family um, I went to a school that was a very, very different than what I was used to in the sense it was much more cultured, a lot more diverse mix of people. I didn't have any friends. I was very, for many, I'd say at, probably at least till I was 14 uh, or 15, I was, I had several different identities in the sense that I didn't know who I wanted to be. I didn't know if I was a skater. I didn't know if I was a, a thug. I didn't know if I was, uh, an athlete, you know, I, I wasn't sure. And I was, you know, all the kids that I grew up with in New Jersey, I'd grown up with them, you know, from preschool till middle school. So that's what I knew. And then moving to Florida, I was meeting all these different groups of people I, I didn't know. And, and so, but I'm actually glad because I believe that moving to Florida really shaped, um, it definitely shaped who I am and what I do for a living now, um, for sure. Yeah. And so what was the next business you started? Like you're, you're in Florida. Did you, did you start looking for ways to make money or to, to flex that entrepreneurial muscle? Yeah. I mean, how honest do you want me to be? <laughs> <laughs> as honest as you want to be. Um, yeah. So I had discovered the street pharmaceutical industry and um, took a liking to that. I think it was because I became friends with everybody very, very quickly. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I always had this knack for, I guess, somewhat being a leader or a seller also, you know, a salesman. And so through that, very quickly, I had discovered the rave scene. 
So for you or those that don't know what that is, it's, it's basically the underground music scene for electronic music, or as, as they call it today, EDM. And I started getting heavily involved in, in going to raves. And one of the great things about raves back then and still today is that it's, 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 there's no exclusions. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white or red or green or overweight. Everybody is welcome. And um, there's so much love and happiness. And still, still today, that, that scene does exist just on a much bigger scale. And I, I found my happy place. And I, I definitely got into some trouble and got into some things that, you know, I'm not necessarily proud of today as an adult. But what I will say is I don't have any regrets and getting involved in that scene and, and all the other extracurriculum activities had showed me or had, had brought me to the love of producing and producing events. And I absolutely fell in love. And so my next business was I became a rave promoter. And I started promoting um, raves in 1990. My first one was in 1996. So how old are you, just to give some context? I turned 40 in May, last May. No, no, no. How old were you when you, uh, when you produced that first rave? I'm sorry. Oh, God. I, I was, what, 16, 17? Maybe yeah. I was 15, 16. I'd have to do the math. But I think I was 16. Yeah, so not very old. I mean, what did that first one look like? Like, how big was it? Like, how much overhead was there? Like, was it a sizable event? It was a flop. It was, okay, let me back up because it, it was a flop because we made no money and we lost money. But um, so it was called Old School Jam and I had rented a, a warehouse in Fort Myers, Florida, an old skate park. It was a skate park warehouse. And I had booked all the DJs. Now, now mind you, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew a lot of people, but I didn't know what I was doing, you know? And there's a lot that goes into even a small rave. And so what ended up happening was I drive to Fort Myers and, and, you know, I think a lot of business people can, can relate to at least some part of this story. I go there and, and what we do, it's called loading in, loading in a show, excuse me. So we're getting ready. We're loading in the show and my lighting and sound guy never showed up. So he was the same person from, from South Florida he never showed up. And so for hours and hours and hours, I'm panicking and I'm calling him and I'm calling him and I'm calling him and no answer and no answer. He never answers. Called his roommates, no answer. So I, I don't know, maybe seven, eight o'clock comes, the DJs start showing up. Now we're talking about not superstar DJs like you see today, but they were, you know, one DJ was from Atlanta. You know, we, we had some pretty, pretty nice sized DJs. You know, I think the total budget was like 12 or $15,000. And basically what ended up happening is we couldn't open. I mean, we had no sound, we had no lighting. We had, I would say at least a thousand people in the parking lot waiting to get in. Um, and so it was a complete failure. It was, it was a flop. And, and, um, and how'd that feel? I mean, how'd that feel? You had to like go, like, I, I can imagine that moment, like you're, you're thinking this is going to be this incredible success. You're doing the thing you love to do. I mean, talk about that moment. Take me back to that time where you like had to like, who did you tell? Like, did you get like, you got, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining fire festival, you know, like, did you have to like, <laughs> did you have to like, who did you tell? Did you have to get on a car and yell, Hey, you know, it's not going to happen. Like, like what happened? Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, from an emotional standpoint, I was beside myself. I, I, I screamed, I cried, I yelled, I wanted to punch somebody in the face. I, I you know, just every emotion possible. I, I felt like a moron, you know, I was a new promoter, you know, nobody knew who I was. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I essentially at some point, I had to make the decision to call it, you know, and say, everybody go home, you know, it's, it's not happening. And, um, you know, every, you know, there were people that, you know, high five me and, and people, you know, the DJs were all sympathetic and, uh, you know, 
later on, I found out that I, I basically uh, got screwed over by other promoters. And that's why the lighting and sound guy never showed up because I was essentially, you know, invading on their turf and taking business away from them. And yeah, that's a, that's a whole story, but, but yeah, yeah. What is that story? What happened? They like, they paid that guy off or they pressure him not to show. Yeah. They, they basically pressured him not to show and you know, he didn't. And years later, years later, I did another show, not years, 1998. I did another show and, and I actually, um, this guy and I sort of had talked throughout the years, you know, and, and he ended up doing the lighting for this show in 1998 for free to sort of make up for the show that he screwed me on. And so, but yeah, I mean, he basically got muscled into not showing up and, um, uh, you know, I would say that, it, you know, one of the life lessons and business lessons I learned, uh, you know, of course, now being a seasoned event producer, I would have just gotten on the phone and called other lighting and sound companies, you know, and said, hey, I've got this warehouse and I've got money. Come bring a lighting and sound rig. And I wouldn't have spent hours and hours trying to get a hold of this guy because clearly at some point I should have been like, this guy's not showing up. Either he's in a car accident or he's dead, you know, or whatever, you know? Um, so you, you, you live and learn, but, um, it took me a little bit of time to sort of get over that for sure. Yeah. So how'd you bounce back? When, when was your next event? So my next event, well, uh, so my next event that I fully produced was in 1998. Um, but prior to that, I had been sort of doing underground, uh, no pun intended, underground sort of work in where I was investing in other promoters or other parties um, and not, you know, my name wasn't given, my production, you know, name, which at that time was N2 Productions. It didn't, um, I was just sort of behind the scenes, if you will. And then in 1998, I partnered with um, my buddy Vinny and another partner, Todd, who, who uh, Todd ultimately was my partner in several different businesses, but we produced a very, very successful event uh, in, in Miami and um, yeah, we killed it. So yeah, my, my career just kept going and we picked ourselves up. Yeah. And so you, you're starting to promote events and, and do that, but then you also get into paintball, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I... I got into paintball when I was 12, when I moved to South Florida and, um, I ended up playing in playing professional paintball, uh, and amateur paintball, basically overall competitive paintball for over 14 years. Um, I went into the paintball business. Um, I opened a paintball field in a store here in Denver, Colorado, when I, when I moved here, um, and ultimately, um, merged my passion for producing fest concerts and, and live events to paintball to kind of move into my next venture, which was music festivals. Yeah. But before we get into that, like what is professional paintball? Oh, it's amazing. It's, it's so, um, without going into too much detail and story, the, Professional circuit has evolved much, a lot over the last, you know, 20 years. But when I first started, uh, the core event was basically capture the flag, either five man teams, which would be five on five or 10 man teams, 10 on 10. And we played on huge fields in the middle of the woods and it was capture the flag. And then, um, as the sport evolved, they moved into more of a, what they call a speedball setting. And the whole transition was to try to get paintball on TV and TV was not friendly, could not be friendly in the woods. You know, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, hidden objects, you know, the cameras couldn't get good angles. So speedball basically developed and was a much faster paced sport but essentially, you have a group of, of humans that are have uh, paintball guns. Today, the paintball guns shoot anywhere up to 20 balls a second. And um, you're battling it out on a field. 
five on five, 10 on 10 or seven on seven. Um, the circuit, you know, spans different cities and states in the United States and then goes over to Europe with a sister league. So I've played all over the world, professional paintball. Yeah. And, and, and like, you know, what I'm interested in is like, what does the professional part look like? I mean, is this like, kind of like, uh, you know, reminiscent of the movie dodgeball? Are you guys, you know, do you have groupies? <laughs> Are you flying around in jets or is it more like, I mean, like what is professional, yeah. like what's the professional circuit yeah. as you call it? What's the, what's the circuit look like for pro paintball? Yeah. So it's definitely not NFL. It's more dodgeball for sure. There are definitely groupies. I did not have any, but there are groupies. Um, the, so tournaments themselves are made up of amateur and pro. And so the amateur goes from rookie to amateur to pro. And the pro circuit right now today, I think, is made up of 18 or 20 pro teams. Uh, mind you, I've been out of it for several years now. But um, usually what you what you had in the, in the sport is you had one person that either owned a paintball field or owned a paintball business, or in one case, there was a doctor that his kids played paintball and he was very wealthy and he started a professional paintball team and funded the team. A lot of times what happens is all your expenses are paid for to travel. And then you have sponsors within the paintball industry that pay for some of that, but also get you equipment and then when you win, you divide up the winnings. And back then, the winnings were not very much. They were anywhere from 15000 to 50000 depending on the sport or depending on the, 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 the tournament. But you got to remember, for 10, 12, 15 guys on a team, you know, it, it wasn't a lot of money, to be honest. And, and most guys that made the money in the sport, like I had a very close friend that back then was – you know, considered the Michael Jordan of the sport. I think he made at one time three, 400 grand a year, which is real money for sure. But that was based on him working for a paintball company and then also putting his name on products and getting, you know, a dollar or $5 per product sold. So it wasn't your true essence of, hey, I'm signing up for this team and signing a $400,000 contract. Yeah. So you're buying your own drinks pretty much every night is, yeah. is, is what I'm gathering. Yeah. And so, so, uh, we can move on from paintball in just a second, but I do have one question. Uh, young Justin Moss, the paintball pro paintball pro, what were you known for? What was like your signature move or what, were, what was your role on the team? Yeah, I was known for being very small and fast and pretty, I don't want to say crazy, but I, I guess a little crazy in the sense that I, I was what you call a front player and front players are kind of like a running back uh, in football where we are sometimes sacrificed. We are running straight down the field. We're moving to the most forward position as fast as we can. So there were times that what we also had a back player, for instance, and the back player was sort of your on-field coach. And so, for instance, they might say, Justin, or we had codes, but for, you know, for, for clarity or ease, I, they would say, Justin, go to, you know, the snake. And I would run as fast as I could to go to the snake or one of my, you know, plant, one of my signature moves was to run as fast as I could out of the box, which they called it, you know, the, the flag box at the start of the game and try to shoot as many people as I could running as fast as I could down the field while the rest of my team came behind me. So you had players that would, the opposite, the opposing team would focus their guns on me while my team would focus the guns on them and essentially, you know, advance the field and win the game pretty quickly. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. 
This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again. And this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. You are, are you into paintball? And I'm guessing just based on some of the winnings and what we're talking about, you're like, yeah, this is cool, but this probably isn't the future for me. This probably isn't going to help me achieve my goals or be, I'm not going to be long for this world. And you're, you're getting into uh, producing music festivals and uh, you produced your first major music festival at 22. Uh, That must've been, that must've been a big, big moment for a young kid. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, once again, if I, if I, every single emotion that a human can have in that year happened to me. Um, but yeah, I was, I was, um, you know, technically at the forefront of producing multi-day, multi-styles of music festivals in America. I was dubbed by the New York Times as ahead of my time. Now, obviously in America, we had Woodstock and Us Fest and staples of the music festival world. So I would never take anything away from those guys and girls that paved the way. Um, but at that time, 0102, we, our festivals in America were very jam band related. So the dead were doing, you know, three day festivals with camping jam band festivals were popping up with camping, but we didn't have a lot of multi-day, multi-style festivals. You had Lollapalooza, but at that time was still very much a tour. Coachella launched in 99, but it was a flop and nobody really knew who they were, but they were, except for on the West Coast, pretty much. And so I started really kind of seeing what was going on in Europe and Asia. And Europe had been at that time, probably 10 maybe 15 years ahead of us in music festivals, maybe not quite 15, probably 10 years ahead of us. They had some major, major festivals like Love Fest and Leeds and Reading and, and just big, big festivals. And, and so what I wanted to do and, and where I got this idea was I wanted to marry my love of producing an event and paintball and my love for paintball was how do we get paintball into the mainstream? And, you know, people had been trying to do that for years and years and years. And so what I thought of was, well, skateboarding's in the mainstream now. BMX is in the mainstream right now. Moto X is in the mainstream right now. And of course, music is in the mainstream. So let's bring them all together and have a fucking music festival. And so... Um, in 2002, um, I launched, uh, well, the, the festival actually happened in April of 2002. It was called Beyond Extreme Sports Music Festival. Um, I had raised a bunch of money from, at that time, a dot-com millionaire. Um, and, and remember, this is in 2000, 2001, and dot-com millionaires were not really a huge thing. There wasn't a ton of them at the time. And we produced uh, a festival that um, we had five stages, over 75 artists. We had Stone Temple Pilots, Outcast, Ludacris, Snoop Dogg, Method Man, Third Eye Blind. Wait, wait, wait a second. Like, like, how'd you do this? So like, you're 22. Well, I imagine you're 21 when you're getting this thing going, maybe even younger. You get someone to give you a ton of money. And you're getting these huge, I mean, like, how do you pull this together? That's like crazy. Yeah. Well, Mark, we're going to need another couple of hours. So I'll try to streamline it the best I can. But essentially, just like in 1996, when I didn't know what I was doing producing a rave, in 2000, 2001, 2002, I knew what I was doing producing something, but I had no idea how to produce a multi-day music festival that we were trying to get 40, 50, 60,000 people at. And my background producing underground shows, you know, it was, didn't transition very well because we were not used to producing big outdoor shows with big stages. 
We never booked big, huge bands. Like at that time, Stone Temple Pilots was one of the biggest rock bands in the world, you know? And so we really cut our teeth on making a lot of mistakes, getting a lot of people in the music industry on our side somehow and believing in what we were doing. And we, we bullshitted our way to making it happen. That's just crazy to me. And so that went off and, and uh, was a huge success. Yeah. So it was, it was a success. And still to this day, it was a success in several ways, just not financially. Financially, it was a flop. Um, but as one of my agents that we, we worked with, and I won't mention her by name, but you know, at that time she was an agent for a huge, huge band that we, we had on the lineup. And, um, you know, one of the things that she had told me was, Justin, if you never do this again, you did it. If you go to burger flipping, you produced the biggest music festival at the time. And, and she was right. I mean, we brought some of the biggest artists together. Tony Hawk um, was there doing a whole extreme sports area. We, we, it happened. There was thousands and thousands of people there, but we did a lot of things wrong. And because of that, we lost a lot of money and essentially we were going to do it again the next year. And, that was sort of the business model. And it still is today that it takes two to three, up to five years for a festival to become profitable and build brand awareness. And we had always thought that, and we thought that it was going to be longer because once again, festivals in America were not, you know, as they weren't really a thing. And uh, what ended up happening was our investor got into some legal trouble we made some mistakes and then ultimately we just had to move on and, and close the company. And that's when I moved to Denver. Yeah. And then, so where does your career go from there? So you, you close the company. You're, I'd imagine you have a little bit of your tail between your legs. You're, it didn't go the way you wanted. Uh, you just shut down what you thought was going to be your future. Uh, you moved to Denver. What next? Yeah, I, I definitely was, um, pretty devastated. You know, I, 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 at that time and, and still very much today, my passion is music festivals. My love is bringing people together in mass gatherings like that. And, um, I just, I, I had an opportunity that developed very quickly to open a paintball field and a retail paintball store here in Denver. Um, and so I did that very quickly um, so I didn't transition very, I mean, to give you an idea, you know, the, hap, the show happened in April, April 12th, 13th, and 14th. I had moved to Denver July 4th weekend uh, and opened my paintball field, I, I, I want to say by the end of July, August. So transitionally, I moved very, very quickly. Um, the idea of moving here was I do another business. Paintball is still very much my passion. I could take the time to decompress, figure out what I did wrong, figure out what I did right, and raise some money and do the festival again or create another festival. And so um, I started doing that. And I did some shows here and there while owning the paintball field, some smaller club shows. I, I consulted on some bigger projects as a festival consultant, as festivals started gaining some popularity and momentum. And um, I was just never able to raise capital. I was never a very good capital raiser. I, I happened to fall into this investor originally. Um, and uh, But my partner in the music festival, his name's Todd, uh, still very, very a a dear friend of mine. We had reached out to a couple of consultants and, um, you know, once again, I was still pretty green in, in the business world, realizing that a lot of consultants were bullshitters. <laughs> but we, we ended up finding a consultant that in the long run turned out to be a complete full of shit, you know, but he brought us together um, and created sort of this two-day working session and, and brought these two guys in from, uh, from another digital marketing agency at the time. And we were basically creating a new music festival. You know, this was 2004, 
2005 and, and we were trying to figure out, you know, what was going to be the next big music festival. And through the, that, the, that session, we had come up with a concept. Um, but, but what really happened that was really um, exciting was, um, like I said, the consultant ended up being, you know, not a consultant and just not a good person. But the other two guys, you know, we became very close with. And ultimately, um, I started, uh, basically, let me back up. They had come to me and said, look, we do digital marketing. There's all sorts of great stuff happening. You guys know live events. You guys built something amazing and, and, and you know, still continue to produce amazing things. Let's put that together and look at this new emerging marketing strategy called experiential marketing, or if you really want to get down to the roots, guerrilla marketing or PR stunts. And why don't we create a new agency that focuses on experiential marketing? And so I started my first experiential marketing agency uh, in 2007 with, um, with three other partners. And so it sounds like, hey, great idea, you know, like let's start an experiential marketing. We, we love this stuff. But who were your first customers? How did you start to get customers? Like, what did that look like? Were you immediately good at it? Was it a little rough in the beginning? Yeah, it was. Well, let me let me start off by saying that I did not love experiential. One, I I actually didn't even care for it. What I cared for was building events and building experiences. And it took me a very long time to really get and understand what experiential was and what marketing was. Because you got to remember, I came from the event world. I came from concerts and festivals, which was very different than marketing a product, whether it's digital or experiential, because my product was the band. My product was sometimes the brand of the festival, but mostly the band. If I'm booking Eminem, they're coming to see Eminem and that's what I have to market. And so I was very resistant, but what I loved was this opportunity to create a new music festival. And while I'm creating this new music festival and going out and raising money or whatever it was that I was going to do to get this music festival off the ground, I was going to be able to produce things for clients. And so we, we struggled with finding clients because we were, we had great branding, we had great material, but uh, I would say I and another partner were the only real sales guys, if you will, the real kind of go out and getters. And, you know, the other partner was a strategist and can talk the game, but ultimately me and the other guy had to get people on the hook. And so what ended up happening, which kind of turned the corner for us, and this is crazy, but I was basically at Buffalo Wild Wings, and at the time, I was a card shark, meaning I handed my business card out to anybody that would take it and listen. I get a call. I don't. I don't. I can't re- recollect the time frame, but I basically get a call. Uh, I, I let's call it a few months later, and and it's a gentleman, and he's like, "Hey." Uh, it's Glenn, you know, do you remember me? And I'm like, I know. <laughs> He's like, well, I'm working with Google and um, we're working on the Democratic National Convention for 2008 in Denver. And uh, I wanted to know if you can, you know, come up with some ideas and, and, and whatnot. And so Long story short, uh, we came up with some ideas. We used their ideas as well. And we executed um, uh, uh, a pretty substantial activation all around a few uh, in different areas around Denver for Google and YouTube. And so that must have been an amazing opportunity, an amazing break for the business. Yeah, I mean, it was it was incredible. But you know, look, over the years, we we ran the company until basically 2014. Um, my one partner, Todd, ended up leaving. Um, and then I ended up buying out uh, another partner. And then we did some amazing events. We won some awards. But ultimately, it just wasn't, it wasn't what I loved. It, it, the, the way we were operating wasn't anything I, I enjoyed at the time, you know, once I, I kind of grew up into the industry. But 
you know, unlike my statement earlier, I learned to love experiential marketing and I learned a lot about it. And I learned to have just as much passion for experiential marketing as I did for music festivals and concerts because of sort of, I guess part of it was because it was easier for me to get a brand to buy into me creating an experiential campaign for them versus me creating a festival. But at the same time, I I just really loved giving a voice to the consumer for the brand, but also for the consumer and not talking at the consumer, but talking with the consumer about a brand or about a product or a service. And that's what experiential at the root is. And so I, you know, today started the Pineapple Agency in 2014 uh, and absolutely have never looked back. Yeah. And let's talk about uh, that a little bit, that angle of experiential as the voice of the consumer and that it's for the consumer. Like, why is that so important? Um, for, for several, for several reasons. One, you know, if you look back at the history of marketing and advertising, and then I'm not going to pretend to be a student of it, but you know, brands have guided our thoughts, um, a lot of the way, you know, if brands want the color purple to be popular that year, they're going to do it you know, and they're going to make it popular. And you're inundated with it from TV to radio. You know, of course, now you have internet, you know, the small screen TV, and you can't get away with, you can't get away from it. It's, it's everywhere. It's, it's, and, and, you know, now by creating experiences, um, by leveraging those emotional connections, you're, not only giving the consumer a choice to attend those connect, those experiences and those live interactions, but you're also giving them a way to promote it and a way to promote the brand and the service and the product through social media, um, through connectivity, whether it's text messaging or, or whatever. And so, you know, now more than ever, consumers are empowered to say, you know what? this is an amazing product. This is an amazing brand. And I'm going to tell my friends about it. And oh, by the way, I was involved in this experience that was produced by the brand, but it connected me with the brand and made me feel like I was important. And it wasn't about brand. It was about this experience. And, you know, versus, you know, here, put a Coke in your hand and, love it and drink it and then go to the store and buy some because you loved it and drank it, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And I think that's just a great way that you articulated that. I mean, to me, so much of branding is that, you know, especially in the modern era of branding is we've turned and we have to control of the brand over to the consumer and the and control of telling the story to the consumer. Now we can influence it. We can give them some information, but ultimately Everyone is out there with their own magical storytelling device in their hands, uh, as well as just the way they do it with their own, uh, the old fashioned way with their mouth and their minds, but they're out there telling that story and to give them that platform is a great way to further the brand story and allow customers to do it in an authentic way. Absolutely. And, and, um, look, I'm opinionated and, and those that know me know that, but I'm, I'm also, you know, as I've said many times, very passionate. So that sometimes can clog my opinion. But with that being said, I'm a firm believer that if a brand is not at least participating in some sort of experiential campaign, and and I and experiential these days is a is is used a lot, and and that could be anything from a PR stunt to building a better experience in your trade show booth for a B two B. Uh, a product launch, a PR stunt, uh, you know, it could be so many things, but I'm a believer that if you're not involved in experiential in some way, then you're going to get left behind, you know, and you're not, you're not going to be around, you know, similar to the way the website, you know, today, you know, in the nineties, if you didn't have a website, it was like, yeah, you don't have a website, you know, today, could you imagine any 
brands, large or small, not having some sort of presence on the web, it's, it's wouldn't happen. Yeah, no. And so experiential is the new internet. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> to, to a point, I mean, I guess, yes. I mean, if, if I'm being honest, I think that experiential is, 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 is just as important right now. And you know what? It's funny. You know, we're talking in April of 2020 and we're obviously in this, this crazy world right now, you know, with this pandemic. And um, I actually have a letter that is going out in a couple of days to, you know, sort of an open letter um, to not just my clients, but the world in, in that do not let experiences fall by the wayside. We are living right now in these last four or five weeks in a world of digital more than ever. Digital live cast, digital you know, concerts, digital marketing, whatever. But humans need experience. They need interaction. And event planners, experiential marketers, live musicians, we need to come together and bring experiences back faster and more powerful than ever when this pandemic is over, because that's the way the world is going to stay together and come together even more through live experiences, through hugging, through sharing that goosebump moment, watching the Rolling Stones on stage, being at an experience for Google or Under Armour, you know, that's how we're going to come together again. Yeah. So Thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. I'm fired up. I actually got some some goosebumps just, you know, thinking about it because it is tough. And, you know, you've mentioned this several times about how important experiences are, how important it is for us to share them as a collective audience. Like, like, what do you love so much about both experiences and experiential marketing? Yeah. So in layman's terms, or my layman answer is. I love the smiles. I love the, the, the moments that you know you're creating for these, these people. Every concert, every festival, every experiential campaign, big or small, that I, I have the ability to be at, my, I go on stage. I, I stand in the background in the corner. I, I watch. I watch the smiles. And... Um, I, I, I love it. I, I think that that's what I was put here to do. Um, bring people together and, and make them smile. And I, I think from the more strategic business marketing guy that Justin is, what I love about it is that you are, once again, giving the voice to the consumer, but you're allowing a brand to get an ROI for dollar for dollar spend for less than they get on traditional media. Um, They reach KPIs, I believe, faster, even though they're harder to track through a live experience than, say, a TV commercial, but they reach their KPIs and their goals faster through a live experience. So we bridge the gap between creating smiles and moments and for our clients, because we're partners, their marketing strategy and selling their products or services ultimately, you know, so hopefully that made sense. (laughs) Total sense. It makes complete sense. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. So looking forward, Justin, what's, what's next for you and the pineapple agency? Yeah. So, um, you know, luckily during this crazy madness, we're still working. Um, we've got um, some great projects in the pipeline. Some have been postponed. I'm looking, I'm expanding the agency. Uh, I'm looking to potentially um, add one specific vertical of adding more fabrication in-house and more digital marketing in-house. So that, you know, we're already doing digital marketing for every campaign we do, but maybe potentially as a standalone strategy. And then we've got a very cool, unique music festival that, um, yes, if you remember from earlier, I created many, many years ago. That is even more relevant today. I am a believer that this festival could potentially change 
festivals forever, um, or at least interaction with festivals from a consumer standpoint. So I, my goal is to push that really forward um, this year. And then who knows the world, the world is, um, the world is an amazing place. And, uh, you know, there, you know, I'm just living it. I'm just living it, having some fun and creating some, some cool shit, you know, and that's, that's what we're here for. And that's what I'm going to continue doing. Yeah. So Justin, that going back and thinking back to that young eight, nine-year-old Justin, what would he say if he saw you today, where you're at, what you're doing? What would he say? He would, oh, wow. This is, this is a good one, Mark. I would say, I would say he, he would, he would say, wow, you, you really, you really did something great for not just yourself, but, but humans. You, you really, you really, uh, you really took your, your, your passion to the, to, to the masses and the next level and applaud, applaud me, my team, you know? And I think the other thing he would say is, Wow, you made it past 21. <laughs> and that is Justin Moss of the Pineapple Agency on a mission to bring people together and make them smile. Thanks, Justin. You certainly brought a smile to my face. And thanks for sharing your story. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 